Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's July 4th week, and this is part two of our roundtable discussion with our industry-focused hosts. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined in studio by industry-focused hosts Shannon Jones, Dylan Lewis, and Jason Moser. How's it doing, folks? Hey there. Hey. Hey, great to have you all here again. We're on for another segment. This segment is going to be called News or Noise. We're going to be looking at some of uh, the news stories that have been around the stock market and the world in these past six months and uh, what they might mean and whether they're important to investors. So the first one we want to talk about so it's been going in, uh, on with Iran this past few weeks. So uh, just a couple weeks ago, uh, there was there was an oil tanker in the Strait of Hormuz that was attacked uh, and, and led to uh, conflicts with Iran. The next day after that, Iran shot down a U.S. drone, which has led to increased tensions. President Trump has announced that he's going to drastically ramp up uh, sanctions against the country. That's led to increases in oil prices. Is this news or noise? Should investors be paying attention? Totally noise. If it's not North Korea in vogue, then it's Iran or Russia. So, noise for me. It feels like news, but this is admittedly a story that I haven't followed super closely. Um, I mean, we've talked you know, in editorial quite a bit about oil dependency yep. and oil independence. And so, um, I think that this is a situation where it's probably good that the energy industry in the United States has ramped up over the last couple of years. Yeah, geopolitical risk is a very good reason why I don't invest much of anything into the energy industry anymore. Um, with that said, I mean, typically I look at these things and, and see them as just nothing more than noise because the bottom line is that Iran needs the world way more than the world needs Iran. And so when you look at it from that perspective, it's just noise. Yeah, I think I'm kind of in the middle with everybody else. I would probably tend to say that it's noise. You look at you look at a lot of these companies in the uh, countries, excuse me, in the Middle East. They benefit from high, higher oil. What is higher? What pushes oil prices higher? Conflict and uncertainty. Uh, these sorts of behaviors uh, do foster that. However, I will say some of the when it comes to us pulling out of the nuclear deal with Iran and those kind of increasing tensions in in the region, uh, it could be news down the line. I think today probably noise. All right, uh, next topic, and this is this has been in in the news. I mean. For, Really, <laughs> I mean, it seems like forever, but maybe it's only only a little over a year. Uh, but it's tariff negotiations between the U.S. and China. Uh, we have seen just in the past few weeks or, or months uh, that uh, Trump uh, increased uh, the, the tariff rates on China up to twenty five percent. I think we saw we saw a news report out this week that hey, we're ninety percent of the way there to reaching a deal with China. But I think six months ago, officials were saying we're ninety five percent of the way there with China. So, news or noise? These ongoing tariff negotiations with China and how they're affecting the economy globally. Yeah, so definitely news because it impacts uh, a lot of the American businesses here. But I will say we are not 90% of the way there. So I'm going to also classify this as noise because I just don't believe that. I think this is the most impactful kind of noise because it's created so many problems and headaches for American businesses. Uh, and they're not really sure how to prepare for the next you know, foreseeable future because you know, you're making all these supply decisions and trying to make sure that you're adhering to the rules, but also not crippling your business at the same time. So getting ahead of that means that you're doing things on speculation, which we know is a bad thing to do. Um, but it is news. I mean, it impacts people. Yeah, it does affect the psychology of the markets regardless. And I think that is newsworthy. Um, generally, tariffs like taxes, most people don't want to pay them. Um, tariffs clearly raise the cost of doing business over the long haul for everyone involved. Nobody really, I think, can dispute that. I mean, you can, but you'll be wrong. Um, so the bottom line is, I think that DC is doing a very clever job of stretching this out, and ultimately they're going to make it a very big political win as we approach re-election season. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out, but it's no question something you have to at least keep an eye on. 
sensing a little bit of skepticism here from you. Uh, <laughs> a little, 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 little bit of um, yeah, I, I would say this is this is news as well, particularly for folks in the agricultural part of the economy that have been really affected uh, by by China's you know retaliatory tariffs. There, those, those caused some real issues. You know, the U.S. government has started to you know up subsidies, try to help those folks out, but those folks have really been hurt. Um, for some, for some, you know, businesses they may not be nearly as effective, but but have been hurt, you know, by the by the volatility in the market. But I think it's it's definitely news, and hopefully it can get resolved soon. Calmer heads may prevail. I don't know. We'll maybe see how things shake out. Yeah, I, we, we've been saying that for a year, so I mean, I you know, we can keep saying that long enough, but uh, sooner or later things have to change. Okay, the third story, and this is this is one has been has been hot in the news this past week is Facebook's Libra cryptocurrency news or noise. Libra, I'm going to actually go with news on this one because it's actually potentially backed by real financial assets, which none of the other cryptocurrencies are. Um, I will give it a slight slight ding just on the noise end, um, because Facebook is really trying to, I guess, empower the disenfranchised with their Libra cryptocurrency. I don't necessarily see that working out. When I think about the poor, the elderly, um, people who don't have access to modern means of commerce, I do worry about if they're able to launch this and have their own currency, what that actually means for those. Yeah, I think that the appeal of crypto is pretty clear if you're in an area that has wild currency swings. You know, if your ability to purchase things can shift pretty dramatically. I remember visiting the Ukraine maybe three years ago and I was staying with a friend's family. And they were talking about how if you get paid in the Rivni, you're basically spending that money as soon as you can because very often the object that you will purchase will retain its value better than the currency will. And if you're paid in US dollars, that's as good as gold. And you know, so if you're a remote contractor or something like that, when you have that type of environment, it makes sense that you want something that is not controlled by a central bank that is doing things that are potentially damaging and something that is easily transferable across borders. Um, I'm not sure that Facebook is the group that I want to trust with this. So I'm going to call this noise. Um, I do see the value in crypto long term. I'm not sure if they're the ones who are going to be doing it, though. Yeah, I, I generally agree with what you're saying there, but it's it's you can't ignore the potential that crypto in general has globally speaking. I mean, there are problems that it solves. Um, generally, payments is not one of those problems. I mean, we've already solved that problem. It's very easy to pay for anything you want, anywhere you want, pretty much at any time you want. And I mean, I understand the transaction costs for wiring money to Nigeria, and and my sympathies go out for folks trying to wire money to Nigeria or wherever it may be. Those costs, I'm sure, will come down in time, and maybe crypto will be, you know, part of the solution to that problem. I don't know that I really want Facebook to be the one controlling this destiny either. Um, I mean, it does sound like Facebook proper is going to be independent of this, and so that's encouraging. And to see companies like Visa and PayPal making investments, I mean, I feel like there's no downside for them to do that. You know, they invest like ten million dollars. If it doesn't work out, great, they can write that off and move on with life. Um, but yeah, when I think about the unbanked or the underbanked, again, companies like Square and PayPal and Stripe are light years ahead of anything that Facebook could possibly be doing. So I think that really this does depend more on the partnerships that Facebook is able to create with Libra. So certainly something to keep in mind there. But I generally look at Facebook and crypto and think, eh, noise. Yeah, I'm gonna go news on this one. I think it's, I think I agree with everybody's points. I think broadly, just the idea that a company with the size and global reach of Facebook is making a crypto product adds legitimacy to crypto as an asset class that just couldn't have been there previously to this move. 
I think, like Dylan had mentioned, for, for folks, particularly internationally, that have a lot of fluctuation in their currency, we've seen that, a lot of that in South America, something like this that gives some stability to purchasing power and really preserve value could have some value to those folks. But if you look at the way this Facebook cryptocurrency is going to be backed, um, there are some questions over whether they can you know, allow people who have currencies that are going to you know, be this volatile, exchange those for the Facebook crypto and how that's going to affect the backing of, of that uh, of that cryptocurrency, because I think most of the currencies they're backing them with is like the euro, the US dollar currencies that don't fluctuate that much. And so if you're taking people that are exchanging super volatile currencies for your stable currency, does Facebook really want to hold that super volatile asset? How is that going to work? So that's a, that's a question I have. I think there's clear utility for folks that live in, the, in those countries that have highly fluctuating currencies, but the logistics of how that's going to work, I have some questions about, but, but definitely news. Okay, the next story, I think it's another story that's been in the news probably past several years. Um, self-driving cars. Uh, we've seen just yesterday, I think Drive AI was a startup that was acquired by Apple for less than their uh, less than their paid in capital. So we've started to see some valuations come down in the self-driving car space. However, we've seen some some really big promises uh, be put out. I think Cruise last year was saying they'd have their their product ready by the end of the year. Waymo started testing uh, their driverless service in Arizona at the end of December. And then Tesla has announced that they're going to be having their uh, autonomous taxi service ready to run uh, by the end of the year. When you look at all the news floating around uh, with self-driving cars, do you think it's news or noise today? Before we dive into this, let's let's define self-driving. <laughs> um, because I think there are a lot of different definitions floating out there. Tesla having its own definition with its um, autopilot functioning. So um, I think holistically, you have a lot of promises, but not a whole lot of delivery on those promises as of right now. So for me, I consider this more noise until I actually see what I believe real self-driving cars will be, which is when someone doesn't literally have to take hold of the wheel to make sure it doesn't crash into a a pickup truck. Yeah, I think for this trend in general, um, we get so excited by the idea of not having a driver in front of a wheel. Um, But the reality is for most people to have something like that in their driveway, we're probably at least a decade out from that. And so I get excited when I see news like Waymo partnering up with Lyft in Phoenix to get people in cars to make that kind of stuff happen. Um, I think a lot of the other news that we see around this is incremental. Um, unfortunately, you know, for a lot of the companies like Lyft, Uber, Tesla, Alphabet, this is something that plays into the larger thesis about you know how sustainable is this, is this business? I think it's particularly true for Lyft and Uber because without autonomy, the economics of those businesses are just absolutely decimated. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't deny the the technology is there. I mean, clearly, I mean, they make you know self driving car technology that's there. But I mean, anybody who thinks this is going to be widespread in less than ten years is just Deluded. I mean, that's just, there's no way. Like, you have to remember, like, think about this. Every year that Ford and GM sell 15 million new cars, that's 15 million new cars that are going to be on the road for at least the next decade, if not the next two decades. And if you think that people are just going to say, oh, wow, now they've got self driving cars, I'm just going to sell the car I've gotten by a self driving one, that's crazy too. So, I mean, it's there, the technology exists, and maybe there will be pockets where they serve a better purpose. But that's going to be very hit or miss, very isolated, meaningfully for investors. I don't see this being anything worth looking at over the course of the next decade. I mean, to your point about Uber and Lyft and whatnot, I think those that, that will help their business models. But, but we're just going to sit here and deliberate self-driving cars, I think, for the next 10 years as we wonder when they're actually going to get on the road. Yeah, to your point, JMO. I mean, think about how hard 
it is for Apple to get people to upgrade their iPhones, of course, <laughs> right? To to the to the newest, latest, greatest model that has all this great functionality. You have people that have like iPhone fives, yeah, you know, or something like that. Uh, imagine instead something that people buy maybe every eight years mm. and loses value over time. So they are trying to get as much value out of it as possible. They're not going to be racing out to the stores. The early adopters might, you know, to be getting autonomous vehicles, but the average person, it, it's probably going to be fairly expensive. Um, and the upgrade cycles on cars are pretty slow. Well, and we saw a lot of data that recently was telling us there are a lot of people out there that are falling way behind on their car loans, and this apparently is a good economy. So, I mean, you know, when the you know what hits the fan, I mean, these these things face an, an uphill battle. And let's not forget just the consumer trust that has to be there for this to oh, have yeah. widespread adoption. It ain't there now. You no. can see it with the headlines that come out every time one of these vehicles crashes. Um, it's not there. I think insurance companies have to figure out how to build their models around this. That's also another 10 years out plus. So, yeah, I don't see this happening anytime soon. Anybody in here enjoy driving? Like I, I actually like it. I mean, I don't mind it. Now, granted, I, I've grown up just driving my own car, but I don't mind getting behind the wheel and driving my car. I mean, it's it's a nice Sort of freedom to have. Are you in? Are you in the DC area? Uh, no, admittedly, I'm in. I'm in more of the, the country region of Fairfax there we Station. Go. So there traffic we go. isn't quite as busy. Well, maybe they will develop a hybrid, which will not be the energy efficient hybrid, but it will be the drivable slash autonomous hybrid. Well, the JMO model. My my car. Okay, so I have an Explorer, and I was noticed. I was talking to Seth Jason the other day. You know, so it is self driving to the degree that if like. My car, if if it's sort of drifting out of the lane, the steering wheel, the haptics on the wheel vibrate a little bit and mm-hmm. shows you that you're getting out of your lane. So there's that kind of stuff that's really helpful. So it's kind of augmented driving, if you want to call it that. But self-driving, that's a big leap of faith that I just don't think a lot of people are going to be happy to take for a very, very long time. Like, would you put your kid in one of those cars? I know I wouldn't. No. Yeah. I wouldn't no. put them in there. They're 40 no. years old. <laughs> Yeah, to your point, I think the number that comes to my mind, I think I think it's every 15 years is on average how long it takes for the automotive kind of supply to turn over. Mm-hmm. So, so even if we have EVs, I mean, uh, autonomous vehicles tomorrow, and they became 100% of deliveries, uh, it takes about 15 years for, for the market to turn over. Um, the other thing, other thing to think about as well is just the sensor suite and durability of, of those products have to come down over time. So, uh, so lidar, which which most people in the autonomy space you know view view as essential to reach level four, level five self driving, the kind of thing where you're going to sit in the back of your car and take a nap uh, while while you drive to work. Uh, the the cost of that machinery has come down significantly over the past few years. I mean, it used to be for one array it was eighty or ninety thousand dollars. Now it's only ten thousand dollars for one. Uh, however, the durability of this equipment is still not ready for prime time. So uh, for these lidars, you have actual you know mirrors and lasers spinning around. And uh, you know when you're driving a car around, you have to be able to go over speed bumps and those sort of things without messing up the telemetry of those sorts of things. There's really still not there yet. Both the cost and the durability of the equipment necessary for full shelf driving isn't there. Uh, to y'all's point, I, I think this you know, advanced driver assistance systems, lane keeping, the types of things that you know, it, kind of super cruise control, those are going to be standard in cars here in the next four or five years. Yeah. I think Toyota is, is poised to bring that across their lineup. So it depends how you define self-driving, like you said. The idea of you sleeping in the back of your car and it driving you to work. A friend of mine who can work on her PhD in autonomy, I've spent some time talking to her about it, and she said, "Hey, I'm going to be in the AARP before that ever happens to me." <laughs> okay. Um, so you know, those are the folks who are working in the, in the space. Feel like um, a couple years ago, I, I was convinced that I was never going to have to drive a car again. You know, by the time of 2020, uh, as I've looked more into this space, I really think you're going to see more and more driver assistance systems. But the idea that you're going to be sleeping in the back of your car, the car driving you everywhere you need to go without restriction. 
it's it's a dream right now. And we've seen even even among the industry, the expectations have come down in a, in a really significant way over the past year. Folks have hit technological walls, and really every company that has come out and put a deadline by which they'll have full self-driving has made a clear mistake. The ones who have cashed out like Cruise, it's worked out for them. The ones who haven't, like Drive AI, who just got acquired, uh, they're getting acquired for less than they're paid in capital. So, and, and um, to, some, to some degree, this is what you expect with the hype cycle, yeah. right? I mean, we saw this with 3D printing, and we're seeing it again with self-driving cars. There is so much enthusiasm around something, and then the reality of actually making it happen kind of sets in, and you're stuck with having to make it happen, yeah. which which is not nearly as fun, but you know, that's how it Throw works. Throw gene editing into that class as well. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, and, and there's an argument to be made that you need these times of inflated expectations for large amounts of capital to throw to these very difficult problems because otherwise if we were if we were from the very beginning not to have inflated expectations we would never invest capital in these huge emerging industries and we, they may not might not ever be off get off the ground so we need the dot-com bubble to create the circumstances that allow the internet to grow over the past 20 years it could be the same case well speaking um, of getting off the ground I would much rather see them devote these dollars towards space and figuring out that problem versus stupid self-driving cars I mean just <laughs> stop serving your phone and drive your car Human judgment still works from time to time, right? Anyone that has spent any time at Full HQ knows that JMO is all about space exploration <laughs> these days. Yeah, man. I mean, Bezos wants to take us out there and like bring industrialization out there. I mean, the forecasts are kind of crazy. Like, it, at one point or another, there's going to be like one trillion human beings in in existence, and I mean, this planet ain't going to take them all. So you got to do something, right? Yeah. Send them to space. Solve the bigger problems. <laughs> yeah. I just don't see self-driving cars as one of the bigger problems to solve. What are What are your thoughts on the the internet satellite arrays being put up by SpaceX and uh, and those guys? What are your thoughts on how that's going to play out uh, moving forward? News or noise? There. Uh, it sure. It, it seems like a really tough thing to to map out. Like I mean, I, it's kind of amazing those things aren't just like colliding into each other up there all the time. But I, I love the the nature of the solution in trying to. Bring uh, that, that wireless connectivity to all corners of the globe. It seems like the most practical solution. Yeah, there have been a lot of interesting efforts to make that happen. I mean, there was Project Loon, there was uh, the Internet.org initiative from <laughs> Facebook. I mean, it seems like anyone who's got like a little bit of money on the side and mm -hmm. can, can kind of throw it after something a little charitable has taken a swing at it. I don't know who has the best solution there. Yeah, there but that's a, I can at least get behind that though, because sure, yeah. it's something that's not only practical but really does mean connecting the world versus. Self-driving cars. Yeah. <laughs> right. When it's making the pie bigger for everybody globally versus self-driving cars are probably going to accrue to, you know, the global one or two percent, right. at least in the near term. So um, la last story I wanted to throw by you guys, another one that's been kind of fun has blown up in the past year. It's the whole scooters, micromobility trend. Uh, you know, I think particularly in D.C., we saw a huge number of these kind of explode maybe last summer. And it seems like they've kind of backed off a little bit, although they're still all over the streets. Do you think this is a trend that is news or noise? Two thoughts there. I think as an investment, definitely noise. I just don't see the economics working out. Um, as a an avid scooter user, um, I will say I think having an alternate means of transportation, particularly in urban areas, is really compelling. Um, I will say, though, not a scooter is not for everyone. Sometimes you go by and you see people that are really shaky on these scooters, people that should not be on these scooters over a certain age. These are the people that need to stay off the road. <laughs> um, I will say it's very similar to like when bicycles were invented. There was a lot of, um, I guess, angst about it, thoughts about safety. I see scooters ultimately, ultimately becoming the next bicycle. Yeah, I'm totally with you on the investing side. As a consumer, 
I love it. I mean, I, I, I took one the other day. It cost me like maybe two bucks to go from my neighborhood in Columbia Heights over to Adams Morgan to meet up with friends in a bar. It would have taken me probably like 30 minutes, 40 minutes to walk that. And there's no easy bus route to make that happen. It took me I don't know, 15 minutes and $2. I mean, you, you can't beat that. It solves that last mile issue that I think we see so much with transportation and with logistics. But yeah, I mean, you ride those scooters like you pay $2 for them. You know, you, you, don't, tre- you don't treat them like <laughs> yep. you laid out 400 bucks. And on my bike rides to HQ, because I'm you know dealing with that because the metros are closed, uh, along Gravelly Point, you know, where you can watch the planes take off and everything like that, there is a very nice bike trail. And along that bike trail in the high grass are scooters everywhere. People ride them out there and they ditch them. Really? And this is one of the problems that these companies have to deal with is the redistribution, <laughs> the charging, and accounting for their fleet. And that, that that's an expensive problem to fix. Yeah. I mean, I think it's awesome from the perspective of just personal transportation, but I couldn't imagine sinking a nickel into it from an investor's perspective. Yeah. I think we'll make it all around the board. <laughs> Same thing. I think, I think from an investing point of view, I think the information may be Six or nine months ago, put up a write-up on kind of the economics of Bird and, and those those uh, scooter companies, and at least at the 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 amount of life they were giving it, getting out of a scooter at that time, as they even the unit economics on a per scooter basis were not profitable. We'll see how things have changed. They've introduced some new uh, hardware, but the, the economics of it from an investing point of view don't seem to be there. Even though there's been evaluations have really been bid up. I will say, from from a transportation point of view and an efficiency point of view, it is a, it's super interesting. Uh, opportunity. You think about with with Uber and Lyft as they pushed into the cities, traffic actually got worse because we put more cars in for these short trips. Um, Micro mobility kind of solves those short short trip problems, uh, makes makes the ride sharing industry a little bit more efficient. As well, if you think about from an emissions point of view, there's just so much more efficiency of using a scooter that is a 100% utilization light, small battery transportation mechanism versus using a multi-ton car that has a usually 25% utilization rate that takes up a massive amount of space and causes congestion. So as a practical solution to you know mobility problems that actually probably brings down emissions on a net basis, I think it's a great uh, opportunity, but the economics just still don't seem to be there. Speaking of economics not being there, you want to talk about IPOs? <laughs> yeah, let's uh, <laughs> let's talk. That's that's a great segue, Dylan. I, I, we'll, we'll keep you around here uh, for, for those for those. For those keep there for yeah. the year. That was all right. All right. Yeah. So we're gonna call this segment IPO. Yeah, or IPO. No. Um, so we're gonna talk about some of the biggest IPOs we got this year, and uh, whether you think it's oh yeah or oh no. Um, first one we'll do off the top. Uber, probably the most anticipated. IPO this year. They were expected to come out at $100 billion. They came out, what is 20 30% lower than that. Um, you know, when you take a look at Uber, is it an oh yeah or an oh no IPO? I'm going to go with oh no. Um, I think it's, it's safe to say they completely revolutionized um, the ride-sharing space, without a doubt. Um, I think, though, this is a space that continues to get increasingly competitive. Um, we talked a little bit, I think, about the economics, just in terms of profitability for an Uber and a Lyft. Um, ultimately, I think over time, you've got low barriers to entry, low switching costs. I mean, I don't really care if I get an Uber versus a Lyft. Um, and you've got well-established players that are just better capitalized and there are these low-cost alternatives even outside of the ride-sharing space, too. So, for me, I'm just not feeling it on Uber. I'm an IPO no. Yeah, I'm an IPO no as well. And I'm, I'm going to use the same commentary here for Lyft. I know we're planning on hitting them as well. Um, 
I, I look at this and I say, well, the strength is that they built out this great network of both riders and drivers, but because they have contractors, there is nothing keeping them to one of these services. And so Uber went out and basically built the market for this place. And then Lyft was able to be like, okay, cool. Like, we'll just hop in there too. And I think anyone that launches a platform that has very attractive driver incentives will be able to leverage that huge network. There's nothing that's keeping people in there. And that just makes it tough. You're constantly trying to acquire customers. Um, it's an IPO no for me. Yeah, it feels like the barriers to entry are just really low. Um, I love the concept. I mean, as a consumer, it's great. And perhaps, um, you know, really, I think with these, with these, both Uber and Lyft, it's about figuring out ways to leverage that network to do more than just getting people from point A to point B, whether it's food delivery or you know, other stuff. Um, but that is still a ways off. And, and these companies are just immensely unprofitable. <laughs> so I feel like I've got better places for my investment dollars than these two. <laughs> yeah, I'll square that one off as well. It's an it's a no no for me as well. I think when you look at as you mentioned they're losing tons of money while, you know, drivers have been well documented have been paid well below what could be considered a market rate for their services, especially when you take into account the wear and tear on the vehicle. It can even it can even amount to negative income and so to be Operating in a business where you're paying your 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 you know uh, employees or, or contractors such a low rate and you're still burning money at an incredible at an incredible clip, it seems to me that they're gonna they're gonna get hit on two sides. They're gonna have to pay their drivers more, which is gonna cut uh, their profitability even further, and they're sooner or later gonna have to increase the cost of their rides, which is gonna make people less willing to to you know take take the service and is gonna hurt their scale. And so when you've got those two, when you're already unprofitable, and those are the two levers you have to pull to get to profitability, it just seems difficult. We talk about the eats and, and the restaurant side of the business. How that's, a, that's an opportunity for them, and it may be. But when a big part of your business is skimming off margin from restaurants that are notoriously low margin, I, I just don't see how that scales in a way that justifies an eighty, hundred billion dollar business. Uh, could be wrong, but but we'll see how it goes. It, it sounded like everybody's thoughts were about the same for Lyft. It's Uber. It's Uber, but only in the U.S. and without. Without uh, uh, an eats business, any any special thoughts there for Lyft or? Yeah. It's Uber but pink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Until you remove the drivers, the economics really don't make sense there. So this ties in with our self-driving conversation as well. There has to be that technology in place before it becomes compelling as an investment first. Yeah, and then a question I have too is: Okay, snap your fingers, self-driving's here tomorrow. What does Uber and Lyft's business model have to look like to make that work? So you go from a variable cost model where you don't own the cars, you just pay your contractors. To if you're if you're doing a self-driving model, you have to own a fleet, which is you, you move to a fixed uh, fixed cost model. So it, you're going to have to re, totally reposition the way the business is at from a balance sheet point of view, and you have to do that at a time where you're burning cash like it's your job. So I don't know how you make these investments in fixed assets when you're not manufacturing the cars. I, I don't know how that happens. Although, they, the, if you can get there, the economics make more sense. But it's not an easy, you know, shift to make, even if you assume the technology's there. Uh, but we'll see. Yeah, Nick, you're a big fan of the expression "too hard." Yeah, and, I would. And, <laughs> yeah. and and I think that this is a case where it's it's a tough business, and uh, I think there are easier ones out there. For sure, for sure. Okay, next one we want to talk about is Pinterest. Uh, Pinterest went public earlier this year. You know, platform, visual search, very popular among folks to find different ideas for projects. Uh, they came out at a valuation that was below their their previous private valuation. I've had not a huge positive reception as they've come to the market. When you take a look at Pinterest, is it an IPO yeah or an IPO no? 
This one is growing on me. At first, I was a little hesitant, um, but I think with their visual search discovery engine and with the way that they're investing in the machine learning and AI, um, I think it becomes a much more compelling investment for me. So it's still very early on in their monetization efforts, um, trying to get advertisers on their platform. But I think compared to the other big social media players slash advertisers, Pinterest is really driving purchase intent much more than these other players. Granted, it's much smaller. I don't think it'll ever get to the size of like a Facebook. But when it comes to purchase intent, I really can't think of any other um, business right now that I think fills that niche like Pinterest. They've also got international opportunities that they haven't even started to really tap into. So this overall, as I see like average revenue per user going up, um, as I just see the economics of the business starting to come into play, this one becomes just so much more compelling. I'm going to go with IPO. Yeah, on this one. I think I'm probably an IPO, yeah, too. I don't know that I'll be buying shares anytime soon, um, but this model has worked. And it it works particularly well when people are trying to either get ideas, inspiration. I mean, we see that with Instagram ads. It's almost exactly the same thing. Um, my biggest concern is Facebook is move fast and break things. Pinterest is let's move slow and deliberately. I think that that has kept them from getting the collective ire of society because they haven't run into a lot of the issues that Facebook has. But um, Facebook's proven that they are happy to go out there and take functionality from players like Snap and integrate it into their platforms. Does that happen with them? I don't know. Yeah, I, that's the question, right? Is Can Facebook go in there and just copy it and send Pinterest users fleeing? And I kind of feel like at this point, it hasn't happened yet, so I don't think it will. Um, your point about purchase intent, I think, is a really good one, because the data out there is very clear that it, it affects people's purchasing behavior far more than any other social platform. And I think that's where the real uh, goldmine is for this company. So, I do think it's an IPO, yeah. I don't think it's something that gets to be as big as a, you know, Facebook or anything like that. But, I mean, that's not the point, really. I think you, you identify what could be an attractive valuation for the stock. I think it's proven itself as a resilient platform. And if it's a platform that's going to affect commerce and purchasing intent there, then you got you to at least give it some consideration. Yeah, I think y'all all said many points there uh, with Pinterest. One other thing I wanted to call out is you look at a lot of these social medias, with Facebook, Twitter. There's a lot of, I guess, negative connotations that folks have about going on there. I go on there, I always get angry when I go on XYZ <laughs> social media platform. Pinterest doesn't seem to have that relationship with its users. There's no Pinterest trolls. Yeah. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> yes, and, and so I, I think when you've got something that has a clear utility for folks when they when they find projects and those sorts of things, it clearly can drive purchase intent and folks actually want to come back and use it. Mm -hmm. I think it sets them apart a little bit from the other social media players. I will say one concern folks have called out is I think AWS is, is their cloud mm -hmm. provider and that is taking a big chunk um, out of their revenue, whether that they might be able to you know invest in their own data centers or something to where they can get a bigger chunk of the revenue that's coming down to them. But I think the, the core utility of Pinterest makes a lot of sense. There's always that threat there that Facebook is going to copycat them again. But uh, I think it's an IPO, yeah, for me. I wouldn't say it's a resounding one, but it's a company I want to keep following and see how things play out. Okay, the next one has been uh, super discussed IPO. Zoom Technologies, the uh, video conferencing software went public earlier this year and has really just exploded. I think they've they more than doubled, I think, since, since they came out. It's now a $24 billion company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, let it that is, sink in for a second. It's staggering. I, th I think 57 times trailing sales is what it's trailing at today when I looked at uh, Capital IQ this morning. 
but it's but it was a profitable IPO, which these days it's, it's hard to to find those. They're they're few and far between. So when you all take a look at Zoom Technologies, is it an IPO? Yeah or IPO? No for you. I'm going to say IPO curious on this one. Um, I do like the founder, Eric Yon. Um, I think, and I think he came from Oracle or Cisco or Cisco. Cisco. Um, I do like that he was able to build this company. Um, I will say, just in terms of ease of use, Zoom video conferencing is probably the best platform out there right now. My concern, though, is the competition. Um, how easy is it to put together a video conferencing platform and do exactly what Zoom did? Um, I don't know that I see, I guess, a sustainable competitive advantage. Then again, I don't know, but I'd say I'm IPO curious. Really interesting platform, ease of use. Um, I think you mentioned how it's trading in terms of price to sales, like 67 times sales. Yeah, I think, yeah I think 57 is what I have down, but yeah, yeah. it's nosebleed. It's that's, that's Yeah. Yeah, people are treating it like a profitable IPO, right? In, you know, in this situation where we have all these companies where we'll figure out how to make money later, this is a business that has proven there's something profitable there. Investors are putting a huge premium on it. Um, I need to see some conference calls, and I, I want to wait until the lockup period passes before I'm even considering this one because of the nosebleed valuation that it's at. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it's an IPO. Yeah, with the caveat that it's one of those businesses that falls into the category of. I like everything about it. It checks all the boxes for me, um, except for the valuation. Now, typically, with a company like that, I'll say, you know what, I can hold off. I don't need to buy stock in it now. Um, sometimes they make for great opportunities just to buy in thirds. You know, you buy a little bit at a time, and you just be opportunistic with it. Um, and I mean, I, I appreciate the point there in regard to the competitive advantage because. The nice thing about Zoom, it's a great product. It's easy to use. I think we can all agree with that. We use it here at Full HQ. Use it a lot. Um, you know, there are still places that use Skype a lot as well. You know, and I mean, there are other competitors out there that do this kind of thing. So, if Zoom closed its doors tomorrow, what would happen? Well. Commerce wouldn't shut down. People would just use another video conference provider. They may not like it as much, or they may think it's a little bit, you know, more buggy or whatever. But that's that's what they would do. Um, so I think that what Zoom has done has really, you know, fired in on that simple platform, easy to use. It just works. You hear that time and time again in their calls and their S1 and the 10K. It just works, and it does. Um, my question is, what happens at some point when technology continues to evolve when it just doesn't work? What if there is a point where it is a little buggy? I don't know. I mean, you know, if you're selling me on the fact that it just works, well, what happens when it just doesn't? I'm not saying it will, but it's possible, right? Technology is known to do that from time to time. My bet is that CEO Eric Wan would would figure out a way to fix it because his devotion to the customer is uh, Bezos-like. Um, so all in all, like the business, don't like the valuation, but I think it's one that uh, stands to do very well over time. Yeah, I think you all said it. I think the business really easy to use. I've never really had any issues using Zoom's products. The valuation is, is is where the stickiness is. I think that the business is really quality business, but it's priced essentially for perfection. That they're going to accomplish everything that they say they're going to do, and they're going to reach all the scale. Uh, and I don't think that the reality reflects that certainty of that they're going to accomplish those goals. And so I think that that's the concern today. I like that the founders are super concerned with the quality of the product. Another concern I have though is that in the enterprise. The best product doesn't always win, right? Um, so, I, I am concerned with paying this valuation for the hoops they have to jump through to justify it. But it's a company I'm going to continue to watch, and if the valuation comes down, I don't think I would hesitate to buy it at all. Another company along those same lines also IPO'd very recently, or I guess DPO'd, uh, 
<laughs> and that's uh, that's Slack. That's another one we use here at The Fool, another enterprise software company trading with pretty high valuation. I think it's about 40 times sales today. When you look at Slack, obviously it just came out. We haven't really even seen an earnings report from them yet. But uh, is it an IPO yeah or an IPO no for you today? Yeah, and I think we can probably go lightning round through these uh, other ones yeah. here. But I'd say Slack, uh, I'm going to go IPO, yeah. It is replacing the use of email. Granted, you've got now 50 little mini email <laughs> inboxes, but I do like where it's positioned within the workplace. Yeah, I mean, they're an $18 billion company right now. Um, it's a super rich valuation, 40 times sales. But I think it's very easy to see this becoming a 40 $50 billion company down the road. Uh, they have a cult-like following with their product. And they have the advantage that I don't think Zoom has, where the more you use the product, the stickier the product becomes, right? We have all this information on Slack at HQ that people have shared. And the value of the platform is that it's readily accessible. And so it's really hard to ditch an enterprise product like that once you're using it. Yeah, I, I put Slack and Zoom kind of in the same ballpark there. Is I just find them to be extremely easy to use, productive. I, I do hate the fact that I've got like 50 mini you know, inboxes <laughs> now that kind of start to bother me a little bit. So you got to delete those every once in a while. I think I, I want to see a little bit more proof from this company that they um, can make this work. Um, but I definitely like where they're headed. Yeah, y'all said the same things with Slack. It's similar to Zoom. It's again, it's maybe the best product for the service that they provide. However, in the enterprise, the best product doesn't necessarily always win. You can look at some of their numbers when Microsoft has come out with a copycat product called Teams, and you can see where as Microsoft Teams has came into the market, some of Slack's growth numbers have slowed. Uh, again, I think Slack for the, the enterprises they grab are going to be very sticky, but it's a question of. You know how much can other competitors ward off their continued expansion, and how do those relationships that other competitors like Microsoft already have in the enterprise, you know, really help them do that? Um, last IPO I want to talk about because it's probably gotten the most coverage, and everyone has an opinion on it. It's Beyond Meat, uh, value another very high valuation company. I think I pulled out 80 times trailing sales this morning. When you look at Beyond Meat, IPO yeah or IPO no? No. <laughs> is that all you got, Shannon? There's no competitive advantage I see here with Beyond Meat. The valuation is astronomical in relation to their total addressable market. Um, I think you've got better products out there, and you still have competitors that haven't even started to get in this space. Um, I just don't see the fanfare with Beyond Meat. Yeah, I'm a no too. I think this is uh, kind of like Tilray in a way, yeah. right? You don't have a lot of shares available, low float. Um, and it is the only way to really pure play invest in a space that people are really excited about. That means that you're going to have a crazy valuation. I think we're going to see this thing come down over time. This one's for Austin back there. I'm going to give it the old letter Kenny hard no. <laughs> I just don't understand how um, this company earns this kind of evaluation without some clarity into its actual supply chain. Like as we as it stands right now, I mean they can't supply. Like these big national dreams of Burger King and McDonald's all adopting this stuff into their menu, that's fine. I'm sure they probably will over time. I mean, Beyond Meat can't supply those yet. I mean, they don't have the supply chain yet figured out. Um, and it, and it's, it's not like this stuff is great for you. I mean, like, it's really actually not that good for you. It, it, I and understand it they're pursuing. Oh, I, I'll fight you on that. I've no. not, yeah, I've not eaten it. I've not eaten it. I, and, I, and I love the idea that we have meat substitutes out there. I, I'm all for that. I don't know what the competitive advantage is. Uh, I don't understand why the valuation is what it is. It is utterly bizarre. So maybe this works out to be a good business over time, but I wouldn't touch this thing with a 10 foot pole right now. No way. Yeah, I think the Tilray comparison is apt. It's an emerging industry that people are very excited about for various reasons. There's low float and there's not an opportunity to invest in it. And that's really 
pushed up the valuation. But uh, I think as we see, I think about a third of the stock is held by private equity and and corporate investors. So as we see those lockups come away, I think there are going to be some folks that are burned as those folks cash out. But we shall see. I think. Yeah, yeah. One thing just before we wrap on this that I want to talk about with the IPOs is I think a lot of people look at these newly public businesses and they say, oh, this is this has got like Amazon like return potential. And we talked about the valuations that a lot of these companies are going public at, and it's tens of billions. In the case of Uber, I mean, it's a $73 billion company. Amazon wasn't a billion dollar company when it went public. And so you need to keep in mind that because they've stayed private quite a bit longer than a lot of businesses normally have, um, and they are already quite large, you may not see these 10 or 20x returns that you've seen with some of the other major tech companies because the landscape was so different. So I think you got to keep that in mind. Yeah, I think the other thing is you look at Amazon. I don't think Amazon raised additional capital after their IPO. I mean, they funded out of their operations moving forward after that. You look at some of these IPOs like Uber and Lyft that have just been perpetually raising money and burning it out the door. I think the comparison to an Amazon that went, you know, IPO and has been able to fund their operations from their internal cash flow instead of being dependent on the generosity of investors for their continued existence, uh, I think it's a fundamental difference in how you compare these businesses. But I think there's a lot of people chasing the Amazons and the Facebooks of the world of being unprofitable for a long period of time and then capturing a dominant monopoly market share in a, in a global uh, market. But uh, I don't know that necessarily these businesses fall into the same uh, opportunity set uh, that those companies had. Yeah, I think even if you look at a company like Facebook, right? I mean, this was kind of the first big unicorn-ish company to go public. I think they went public at like a hundred billion dollar valuation, something like that. They are now one of the largest companies in the world, and they're a four x, five x from where they went public. That's mm-hmm. a wildly successful business, um, and a lot of people would be thrilled with those returns. But it's a far cry from the expectations of an Amazon-like company, and so just keep that stuff in mind. I think that context is important. All right, folks, I think this is going to wrap up our uh, roundtable discussion for today. I hope you'll join us the rest of this week as we do uh, more segments and discuss more of what's going on in the stock market. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For the industry Focus crew, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. Fool on.